Threads from the National Tapestry is now on YouTube. Search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. On the channel, you'll find full podcast episodes paired with relevant photos and maps about each topic. It's another great way to listen to the show. To search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. By 1864, a desperate Confederacy realized it must resort to desperate measures. Measures not only confined to land battles and trying to break the Union blockade, but the procuring and use of commerce raiders, which would scour the oceans to wreak havoc on the North's vast merchant marine. Anything to create economic hardship. Anything to doom Abraham Lincoln's chances for re-election. This is the story of one such raider. This is the story of the CSS Shenandoah. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. It was a little past 1 a.m. Wednesday, June 28th. On that cloudless 37 degree early morning, there, the Brunswick, a whaler out of New Bedford, Massachusetts, was in distress and flying old glory upside down. After a few more hours, nine additional whaling vessels approached to offer assistance. Assessing that the damage to the Brunswick was beneath her waterline, it was collectively agreed to condemn the ship and auction off her cargo, whaleboats, and whatever gear could be hauled away. Auction complete, yet another ship pulled into view, this one from out of the south. Its three mast and plumes of smoke identified her as an auxiliary steamer, capable of power either by sail or steam. Though the unidentified vessel flew the stars and stripes, the assembled whalers were concerned, so much so that Captain Jeremiah Ludlow of the whaler Isaac Howland got into a smaller vessel and moved toward the unidentified ship. Within hailing distance, he requested aid, which, after some hesitation, was granted. Five small boats were lowered from the steamer, and as they moved toward the crowded scene of the accident, it was noted that uniformed naval officers were amongst those in the small crafts. Then, from the steamer, a cannon blast, and to every whaler's great dismay, the scene of an accident became one of disaster. Old Glory was replaced by the Confederate stainless banner, and a naval officer shouted that all ten vessels and their cargoes were now property of the commerce raider CSS Shenandoah. It was quite a haul, and even more pronounced as it was all played out in the Bering Strait. With no wind and no chance for escape, over 300 men were now prisoners of war. Two ships, the James Maury and the Nile, were ransomed. 
the rest stripped of their cargo and equipment and torched. As fires consumed the eight whaling ships, the crewless vessels drifted crazily amidst ice flows like rudderless ghost ships. That day, Wednesday, June 28th, was the most successful day in the career of the CSS Shenandoah. Yet, its crowning achievement soon read like an indictment, for this was June 28th, 1865. Eleven and a half weeks after Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox. Nine weeks after Joseph E. Johnston's surrender at the Bennett Place. Seven weeks after President Andrew Johnson proclaimed that armed resistance to the authority of this government in the said insurrectionary states may be regarded as virtually at an end. And 30 days after President Johnson, though with some exceptions, granted amnesty and pardon to all who directly or indirectly participated in the rebellion. Completely unaware that the war had been over for weeks, the Shenandoah dutifully carried on its wartime mission. And in carrying out its mission, its crew was unaware that it had fired the last shots of the doomed Confederate nation. We, from the onset, should make clear the Shenandoah was not the first to prey upon Union shipping. It was, if not the last, certainly one of the last of at least 12 cruisers charged with destroying private, unarmed Union merchant, fishing, and whaling vessels. A word or two about the Confederacy's commerce raiders. Before the Shenandoah, there had been the CSS Sumter, whose career as a cruiser lasted barely six months, but the vessel did capture 18 prizes. The CSS Florida was commissioned in August of 1862, and in its two-year, two-month career, it took 37 prizes before its capture. Then there was the CSS Georgia, but no question the most well-known was the CSS Alabama, which, under Raphael Sims, roamed as far as the Indian Ocean and even the coast of today's Vietnam. It captured 65 prizes during its 23-month campaign. For all mention, save the Sumter, the Confederacy's commerce raiders were controversially built in England, and Jefferson Davis's miracle worker there was 38-year-old James Dunwoody Bullock. He was the product of a prominent Georgia family and for 14 years had been a former United States Naval officer. Handpicked by Confederate cabinet official Judah Benjamin, he was introduced to Navy Secretary Stephen Mallory, who made Bullock a Confederate Navy agent and sent him to England in June of 1861. Sworn to secrecy about his mission to enlist British shipmakers to construct ships destined for Confederate service, he badly wanted to inform his beloved sister Martha, who was the wife of a prominent New Yorker. She was the mother of a sickly little boy by the name of Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt. Bullock's task was formidable. He was, in secret, to single-handedly build a navy and from scratch for an unrecognized government that had no credit and was so weak it could not even keep its own ports open. Despite the challenge, he traveled incognito from the south through the north to Detroit, 
where he passed into Canada, took a train to Montreal, and there booked passage to England. He arrived June 4, 1861, and immediately went to work. His office was Liverpool, a then-thriving city of some 440,000. Not only was the city a shipbuilding dynamo, it was also the world's largest point of entry for cotton, and that meant many in the city were very open to Southern interest. Yet, by 1864, Abraham Lincoln's minister to Great Britain, Charles Francis Adams, and his consul in Liverpool, Thomas H. Dudley, were quite aware of Bullock's game, and both unleashed their righteous indignation to Queen Victoria's foreign secretary, Lord John Russell. Adams and Dudley claimed, with justification, that Great Britain's Foreign Enlistment Act, passed in 1819, forbade British citizens from selling arms and other military hardware to combatants in conflicts to which Great Britain was not a party. By 1864, the Confederacy's military picture was murky at best. That spring, Sherman began his drive toward Atlanta. Grant's overland campaign punched south in central Virginia. Ben Butler moved up the James River. Nathaniel Banks up the Red River, and Franz Siegel targeted the Shenandoah Valley. Desperate Confederate measures were required, and so Stephen Mallory issued orders to target the Union's globally dispersed whaling fleet. Driving up operating costs and insurance rates might wreak havoc on the North's economy and therefore erode support for Lincoln's re-election. And there was symbolic work as well. Strike a Confederate blow at where the whaling industry was based, New England, the seat of abolitionism. With Mallory's directive, Bullock went to work. He was aware of a ship that had been under construction since the previous fall, not in Liverpool, but at Alexander Stephen and Sons in Glasgow, Scotland. Launched in August 1863 on Glasgow's River Clyde, she was commissioned the Sea King and by now had already made one run to New Zealand and back. An inspector of Lloyd's of London pronounced her a good capital ship in every respect. However, to make her a Confederate commerce raider, work was required. She would have to be fitted for cannon and storage space reconfigured to create a magazine, and that work would have to be done where snooping eyes might take notice of blatant violation of British law. Bullock, therefore, conjured up a scheme. He arranged for the Sea King to carry a load of coal to Bombay. But once out of port and away from British jurisdiction, the vessel would meet a tender ship, which would carry crew and materiel for turning the merchant vessel into a commercial raider. The site selected? The Bay of Funchal on the Portuguese island of Madeira, which just off the northwestern coast of Africa. By the 5th of October, the coal-carrying Sea King and tender ship Laurel were both ready to set sail. The Sea King from London and Laurel from Liverpool. On the 18th, the two rendezvoused and were lashed together in a cove beneath a huge cliff near an island called Las Desertas. It was there transformation began. 
To command this new cruiser, Mallory selected Lieutenant James Iredell Waddell, born July 13, 1824, in Pittsburgh, North Carolina. He attended the Naval Academy. And when the Civil War began, he was in Hong Kong aboard the USS Saginaw, a steamer in the East India Squadron. When news of Civil War arrived, he was ordered to return to America by means of the U.S. Sloop of War John Adams. At St. Helena in the Caribbean, he jumped ship. And for that act, United States Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells struck his name from the rolls and forfeited his pay. In March of 1862, he received a commission in the Confederate Navy, and up to this point, his service consisted of assisting in the evacuation of New Orleans, the destruction of a Confederate ironclad under construction in the Big Easy, and assignment in Charleston. Then came orders to go to France, and on September the 5th, 1863, to Liverpool. Though 39 years of age, and despite his maritime career, which included the Mexican War, he had never commanded a ship in combat. Broad-shouldered, sporting a mustache, he stood about six feet and was considered handsome, also aloof. He had a solid physique and weighed about 200 pounds. He walked with a slight limp the lingering consequence of a duel with another midshipman over a young lady. His executive officer, second-in-command, was 24-year-old Annapolis grad Lieutenant William Conway Whittle. There were six more lieutenants, Francis Chu, John Grimble, Dabney Scales, John T. Mason, Oris A. Brown, and Sidney Smith Lee, Jr., Together, they were a competent group of young execs, but two decades younger than their captain, and that would create issues down the road. Their first collective challenge was to find a full complement of crew members and transform a vessel before discovery by British and or American authorities. Coal, ammunition, provisions, equipment, and modifications, gun ports, and storage space had to be procured and or completed. In the Bay of Funchal, Waddell employed Madeiran fishermen and unsuspecting crews of both the Sea King and Laurel. Though the tasks were not all complete, transfer of items from the Laurel to the Sea King were made in 36 hours. Of 55 crewmen aboard the two vessels, only 22 signed up when Waddell informed the men of the true mission of the newly commissioned Confederate cruiser. Though at least 60 more were needed, the native North Carolinian put his ship out to sea at 6 p.m. on the evening of Wednesday, October 19, 1864, and done under its new name, the CSS Shenandoah. Now, it was not easy doing so, for with only 22 crewmen, officers had to help raise the ship's anchor. But off she set sail with only one carpenter and only three coal heavers in an engine room that required 18 men. The ship was 220 feet from stem to stern, and at the widest point in her beam, 36 feet. She required 20 feet 6 inches of water and boasted a gross tonnage of 1,025. 
She possessed Cunningham's patent self-reefing topsails, an invention that reduced the necessity of sending men aloft to reduce the amount of canvas exposed to wind. There were two boilers and twin-bladed props that could be lifted or lowered and connected to a drive shaft for steam power. Her engines were capable of 200 horsepower. Painted black, she had a copper sheath which covered her hull and telescoping smokestacks. Iron frames made her holes larger and increased capacity for speed and stability. When placed on carriages, Shenandoah would have eight artillery pieces, two rifled 32-pound English-made Wentworths, four 8-inch shell guns, and two small 12-pounders. Still needing work and short of crew, there was another caveat. Though Waddell had a bill of sale and title, he was warned he could not take a prize until the crew of the Laurel returned to England and formally canceled Sea King's former British registry. For the first three days at sea, work continued to make the Shenandoah sea and battle worthy. For officers and crew, daily routine was the same as for decades on men of war. At daybreak, awake to the bosun's whistle. Ten minutes given to lash up, stow hammocks, and report to the weather deck. An hour was spent cleaning, then came inspection. And except for those on watch, the bosun's piped for breakfast. Men ate in messes, often eight to ten. Stewards served officers in the wardroom, and more times than not, the captain ate alone. The day's work came next. Conversation, smoking, or singing were prohibited. At around noon, lunch, then afternoon duties. Grog, a mixture of whiskey and water, was dispensed twice daily. With afternoon responsibilities complete, dinner. By 10 p.m., again, excepting those on watch, lights were to be put out. That was the regimentation, but that suddenly changed Thursday, October the 27th, when came the cry, Sail ho! James Bullock had asked Waddell to wait 30 days to make sure the Sea King was struck from English registry, but Waddell gambled. The chase was on. Though all the cannon was still not in place, a blank shot was fired and the fleeing vessel hove to. A Confederate boarding party inspected the ship's papers and found the vessel and cargo English, so the mogul was allowed to sail away unharmed. At 1 p.m. the next day, there was another sighting and chase. It was a bark, a two-masted vessel, the Alina from Searsport, Maine, and it carried railroad iron from Wales to Buenos Aires. Upon satisfaction that the ship was of American register, Waddell condemned the vessel. Its officers and men, 12 total, were transferred to the Shenandoah. Confederate naval regulations forbade the confiscation of items for personal property, yet we know how erratically that regulation was enforced. In about an hour, holes were knocked in the hull of the Alina, and she sank stern first. Waddell placed value of the ship and cargo at $95,000.
He also confiscated enough rope and pulleys to fashion gun tackles for the ship's big guns could not be pushed forward and returned after fire from gun ports. The captured crew signed paroles, vowing not to return to sea for the war's duration and not to act against the Confederacy. Executive Officer Lieutenant Whittle was pleased that six of the eight crewmen decided to ship with the Shenandoah. November brought rain, but rather than a curse, it was a blessing. It brought fresh water to wash bodies and clothes. The rain was welcome for crewmen were allowed only one gallon of water a day from the ship's water supply for drink and washing. Large tanks were therefore set up to capture anything the heavens might provide. Now, that being said, the ship's steam engine could condense 500 gallons of fresh water a day, but that process required an ungodly 20 tons of coal. On the 5th of November, routine gave way to chase, and around 8 a.m., the charter Oak hove to. She was a schooner from Boston, bound for San Francisco, and her cargo was coal and furniture. Nine were brought aboard the Confederate cruiser, including Captain, his wife, her widowed sister, and son. More welcome were 600 pounds of canned lobster and various canned fruits and vegetables, including 2,000 cans of tomatoes. Valued at $15,000, the Charter Oak was burned. Two days later, the 7th, a Monday, Shenandoah claimed her third prize— that afternoon, the D. Godfrey from Boston and headed for Chile was captured. Although she carried lumber and barrels of salted beef and pork, the Confederate raider had no room, and so cargo and ship valued at $36,000 was torched. There had been no room for cargo, but Waddell was forced to make room for 10 more prisoners. Most on board were non-Americans, so it was not surprising that five crewmen and a steward shipped on with the Shenandoah. Two days later, the Danish brig Anna Jane was boarded, and open negotiation took place. In return for taking on several of Shenandoah's prisoners and depositing them in Rio, Waddell presented the Alina's chronometer, a barrel of beef and another of bread. On Thursday, the 10th, yet another prize. It was the Susan from Cardiff, Wales, bound for South America and laden with coal. American registered, she was valued at $5,436 and was scuttled. Three of her crew, all Englishmen, illegally signed on with a Confederate cruiser. Two days later, the 12th, a Saturday, two prizes were taken and both bonded the Adelaide and the Kate Prince. Not burned or scuttled, the Kate Prince was loaded with coal and bound for South America. Waddell wasn't able to discern who owned her coal and decided, like the Adelaide, to ransom the vessel. That meant he allowed her to continue unharmed in exchange for taking on the Shenandoah's remaining prisoners. Her captain was, in turn, made to sign a bond for $40,000 to be paid to the Confederacy by the ship's owner after the war and Southern victory. On Sunday the 13th, the officers of the Shenandoah surprised their crew when they arrived on deck in official Confederate naval uniforms that Bullock had ordered for them. 
Trousers were either gray or white. Caps were gray with four-inch crowns and had patent leather visors. Coats were long and double-breasted with two long rows of buttons. Rank was indicated by shoulder straps, cap insignia, bands of gold braiding on sleeves, and even size of buttons. On noon that same day, the officers and crew seized the schooner Lizzie M. Stacy out of Boston. Eight were taken prisoner. The vessel and cargo were valued at $15,000, and the ship was burned around 6.30 that evening. It was about this time that Waddell considered taking a page from Raphael Sims' Alabama book. Prizes were coming so quickly that the native North Carolinian thought he might spare a captured prize, outfit it, and send it out to raid like his Shenandoah. As much as he wanted to, and though he had doubled his crew since Las Desertas, he simply did not have the manpower to do so. On Tuesday, November the 15th, the ship and crew enjoyed a nautical event. They crossed the equator. To commemorate that passage, tradition mandated a certain ceremony. At 7.30 that evening, there was a wobbly fanfare, and portrayed by a seaman, King Neptune arrived lavishly dressed and was accompanied by his court, again, made up of outlandishly costumed crewmen. Wielding a giant harpoon, he, by tradition, had the right to ask any man on board a question who had never crossed the equator before. After each query, King Neptune could require a first-timer to be doused with water, receive an unwelcome shave, or have his mouth washed out with some god-awful concoction. Even officers were not immune to the tradition. King Neptune was busy that evening, for only Waddell and Lieutenant Lee had crossed before. Lieutenant Whittle had to strip down to his undershirt for his ritual shave administered by the sea god. He recalled the shaving soap used was, as he put it, a most wonderful concoction of soap, grease, molasses, and stewed apples. After tradition was honored, now began days of relative calm, which quite honestly produced tedium and boring routine. Confined conditions reduced manpower, and a hardening of the formal chain of command contributed mightily. Feuds quickly escalated to fistfights. By now, the ship's strength was up to 62, 39 seamen, and 23 officers. And from all the countries represented by the crew, the ship was a floating Tower of Babel. The Confederacy, the North, England, France, the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Russia, East India, Africa, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales were all represented. And as hinted earlier, Waddell's authority became less flexible. His first written order required a dress code for officers. He annoyed many by constantly sailing under short sails. And yet the vessel's mission to strike northern whaling fleets had just begun. By late November, his ship was just off Brazil's long Atlantic coast. On Sunday, the 4th of December, the Edward was captured. Registered in New Bedford, Massachusetts, it was an, an American whaler. Fully loaded for months at sea, it took two days to transfer all its cargo and provisions. Waddell assessed the ship's value at $20,000. Included in the haul were 50 barrels of beef, 49 of pork, 46 of flour, 
6,000 pounds of ship biscuits, 1,200 pounds of soap, 600 pounds of coffee, 400 pounds of butter, other foodstuffs, and a wealth of rope, canvas, and blocks. Three more whaleboats were added to the hall, plus a captain, three mates, and 22 crewmen, of which most were Portuguese. All refused to ship with the Shenandoah, and so the ship's prison population jumped to 29. On the afternoon of Tuesday, December 6th, the Edward was burned. Keep in mind, by that date, Grant was at Petersburg, Sherman was just to the west of Savannah, Georgia, and an irate Gideon Wells had dispatched U.S. vessels everywhere to intercept and capture the Shenandoah. At least two men of war steamed east from the East Indies, believing Waddell was headed for Australia. And that, coincidentally, was exactly where Waddell was headed, for a crack was discovered across a brass band on the engine's coupling. A temporary repair was fashioned, but a permanent fix was required. And on Friday, the 16th of December, his ship rounded the Cape of Good Hope, and despite its damage, on the 29th of that month, the Shenandoah chased down and captured the Delphine, whose home port was Bangor, Maine. The bark was headed to Burma to pick up a cargo of rice, so the haul this time was light. Still, the vessel, and what little cargo it had, was valued at $25,000. It was burned, and a captain, two mates, and 12 seamen were added to the Shenandoah's prison population. Rather than be confined below, six chose to join the Confederate cruiser's crew. Conspicuous among those taken was 26-year-old Lilius Lervine Nichols, the wife of the ship's captain and who had her young son, Phineas, in tow. In time, she, as Waddell described her, a tall, finely proportioned woman of 26 years in robust health, was allowed freedom all over the ship, as was her son and husband. By the new year, 1865, the Shenandoah had been in Confederate commission for two months and 11 days. She had already destroyed or ransomed property valued at more than the cost of Shenandoah itself. Life on a cruiser could swing from absolute stupefying boredom to electricity from the chase. But on Wednesday, January the 25th, there was a new form of excitement. For after three months, Waddell made port. At 6.45 p.m., 90 days out of Madeira, the CSS Shenandoah anchored in Port Phillip Bay by the borough of Sandridge, four miles southwest of Melbourne, Australia. As soon as the anchor dropped, Lieutenant John Grimble was dispatched to make the four-mile journey to Government House, bearing a letter to Sir Charles Darling, who was governor of the state of Victoria. Some of the crew wondered why the stop then and there. No matter Word spread like wildfire, and crowds gathered to gawk at the Confederate cruiser out in the bay. Some took to boats which encircled the ship, and many asked if they might come aboard. Waddell, waiting for official permission to dock from Darling, kept everyone at arm's length. And while crowds gathered at Port Phillip Bay, so, too, were individuals who crowded into the office of U.S. Consul William Blanchard. One of the first to arrive was Captain Nichols from the Delphine, who, along with other prisoners, had just been released. 
Nichols reported he had been freed from the Shenandoah, and so letters were written to Charles Francis Adams in Great Britain and to the United States Consul in Hong Kong. Full descriptions were given about ship and crew, and Blanchard demanded that Governor Darling seize the vessel for practical acts. At the government house, Sir Charles was in the middle of a two-hour meeting as to what to do. After much thought, he gave permission to land prisoners, resupply, recoal, and repair. That being said, he wanted it done quickly. When Waddell learned of Darling's decision, he opened the boat to all visitors. Melbourne, a city of 123,000, proved to be, like Liverpool, a city that supported the Confederacy's effort for independence, if you will, supporting the underdog. There, Shenandoah's officers and crew devoured news, even though it was from last fall. They learned of the CSS Florida's illegal capture in a Brazilian port, of Sherman's punishing drive across Georgia, and Abraham Lincoln's re-election. On Sunday, the 29th of January, more than 7,000 jammed the Melbourne-Sandridge line to see the Confederate cruiser. Crowds arrived by 9 that morning and kept coming until 5 that afternoon. Meanwhile, U.S. Consul Blanchard was busy aiding and abetting the desertion of Shenandoah's crew by paying boarding house expenses of those who had permission to leave the vessel and offered substitute incomes. While that was going on, Shenandoah's officers were the toast of town. Free passage was extended for the rail line. Honorary memberships were extended to some of Melbourne's best clubs. Five celebrations were held. One was a special presentation of Othello. And during its intermission, Dixie was played to the vocal delight of some and dismay to others. The officers toured Victoria's new parliament buildings and the prestigious Melbourne Club held a dinner in their honor on Tuesday the 31st. While the officers were faded and crew enjoyed shore leave, closer inspection revealed far more damage to the ship than originally thought. Wooden supports that held an iron apparatus by which the propeller was lifted out of the water had rotted away. The castings, the stern bearings for the ship's propeller shaft, were gone. Melbourne's Langland Brothers and Company said they needed the vessel in dry dock for at least 10 days. So, as diplomatic intrigue mingled with local curiosity, on Saturday, February the 4th, a tug towed the Shenandoah to dry dock. This development raised the eyebrows of many officials and planted ideas in others. Since Shenandoah's January 25th arrival, the crew of a visiting bark from New York City, the Mustang, watched and seethed. They did more than that. They prepared a torpedo a bomb, and under the cover of darkness placed it against the Shenandoah's hull. It failed to explode. Events, however, were accelerating. More than 12 of Waddell's prisoners visited U.S. Consul Blanchard. Conversely, Waddell went to Richard C. Standish, commissioner of police, and demanded arrest of the members of his crew who jumped ship and have them returned. Standish refused. By Tuesday, February the 7th, Governor Darling's patience wore thin. It heightened when he learned that some of Melbourne's citizens had been recruited to serve on the Shenandoah. 
Officials wanted to search the vessel, but Waddell refused. At 5.30 p.m. on February the 14th, some 200 Melbourne and nearby Williamstown police surrounded the Confederate cruiser. A compromise was attempted. If Waddell would allow his ship to be searched, then the police force would withdraw. Waddell polled his officers, and all agreed. No search. As night fell, tensions were at a fever pitch, but fate intervened. Repairs were finished and engine parts were back in place. With this development, Waddell now played a wild card. He sent Governor Darling a note saying if he wanted to avoid an international incident, he and his crew would abandon ship and allow themselves to be made prisoners. With that, Darling backed down. At high tide on the 15th, at 5.30 p.m., the Shenandoah was towed from dry dock. A vessel pulled alongside and provisions were taken on, which included 250 tons of coal. At 8 a.m. the next morning, after 23 eventful days in Melbourne, the Shenandoah steamed out to sea. As it did, 42 stowaways were found in various parts of the ship. Lieutenant Whittle wrote, we had received 34 young American seamen and eight others of different nationalities in exchange for our Irish Americans, 16 Germans, and a Negro who had deserted in Melbourne under a promise of $100 cash from the American consul. From that entry, it appears the Shenandoah did more than repair, reprovision, and recoal their ship. They recruited and there was intrigue about the vessel that appeared and unloaded 250 tons of coal. Bullock, back in England, had sent the vessel, the John Fraser from Liverpool, for the express purpose of recoaling the Shenandoah. Bullock and Waddell had pulled off a pretty coy plan. Now out in the open Pacific, on Tuesday, February the 21st, the Confederate cruiser rounded Australia's southeastern coast and steamed northward. And back at sea, it seems that Waddell's behavior, once again, began to create tension. In particular, he began to bypass his executive officer, Lieutenant Whittle, in chain of command. However, the urgency of the ship's mission took precedence over conflicting personalities. March 1st was the traditional departing date for whaling vessels that stopped and resupplied along New Zealand's eastern coast, and Shenandoah wanted to be in a position to intercept. Meanwhile, Whittle took five who were taken from Melbourne and made them Confederate Marines, a branch of service created by the Confederate Congress in March of 1861. They would serve as sharpshooters stationed in the mast and riggings, and as on-ship police. In the first days of March, the Shenandoah was between New Caledonia and Fiji. They ran into bad weather, and for four days, gale-like winds battered the ship. The weather finally cleared, but on the 17th, rain returned. And all the while, no whaling vessels were sighted. It was at this juncture that Waddell finally shared the true objective of the ship's mission to his crew, the Polar Fleets. With tensions between he and his crew simmering, the ship once again crossed the equator on Saturday, March 25th. This time, there was little celebration. Morale needed a chase. 
And yet, another event lifted spirits. On Saturday, April the 1st, the ship headed toward Ascension Island, today part of Micronesia, where another stopover soothed raw nerves and tempers. Business before pleasure, though. When the Shenandoah arrived, they found four ships in the harbor. All of them were captured. 130 men were taken. Many of them Hawaiian, considered the best sailors in the Pacific. Yet to avoid an incident, they were taken to shore and freed. However, the ships they left, the Edward Carey, Pearl, Hector, and Harvest, were all burned. Their combined value, $117,759, and all in one day. Meanwhile, Waddell went ashore and visited with a local chieftain. He was given a tour of the ship, and muskets, ammunition, and tobacco were exchanged for fresh fruit and fish. And we should mention the loot taken from the four vessels, eight chronometers, two sextants, five or six quadrants, scores of muskets and ammunition, two dozen United States infantry coats and pants, 500 barrels of whale oil, and topping the list, up-to-date charts of the whaling grounds in the polar area. Waddell now knew exactly where to sail. In good cheer, Waddell allowed his crew shore leave. It was a natural paradise made even better when the crew realized that some of the island men exchanged sexual favors of their wives, mothers, sisters, and daughters for plugs of tobacco. From the natives and captured vessels, the Shenandoah now had rations that would last for 11 months and bread for over two years and 10 men from the captured crews shipped on. There was something else gathered from the captured prizes. News. And it wasn't good. The men of the Shenandoah learned that Sherman had captured both Atlanta and Savannah. Hood's Confederate Army had been smashed at Nashville and Fort Fisher's fall meant to Wilmington, North Carolina, was doomed. No matter, as far as they were concerned, though the Confederate military efforts suffered reverses, they were still at war. The remaining crewmen taken from the four U.S. vessels were paroled and released, and on Thursday, April the 13th, four days after Lee surrendered to Grant and one day before Lincoln's assassination, the Shenandoah made for the open sea. Its 13-day visit to the future Federated States of Micronesia still remembered as evidenced by a stamp issued in August of 1985. Underway again, Waddell headed north and with favorable winds made 210 miles that day. Sailing between the 17 and 20 degree north latitudes, trade winds pushed the Confederate cruiser 1,133 miles over the next six days. This stretch of good weather, though, soon ended. A storm hit on May the 1st, and on deck, there was stormy news. Twelve of Waddell's crew had signed up for six months, and now that stint ended. 104 crewmen immediately shrank to 92. Though they obviously remained on board, they refused to serve and their cool responses reflected the temperatures on the northbound course the ship was on. On Saturday, May the 6th, it was in the 20s, and on the 13th, strong winds tore one topsail to tatters. 
Regardless, they, after some seven months at sea, finally approached the area originally designated by Bullock's directive. On Thursday, May the 18th, the Shenandoah was due east of Russia's Kuril Islands and sailing through sub-freezing temperatures. The chill and snow forced the crew to break out pea jackets and overcoats. On the 27th, the officers and crews confronted their worst fear. Off the ship's port beam, ice flows. And yet, at 2 p.m. came the cry, Sail ho! Waddell ordered a Russian ensign run up, and the chase began. Yet another capture, and yet another vessel out of New Bedford, the Abigail. She had been at sea for three years and therefore was heavy with cargo and goods. It took two days to transfer 36 men and cargo valued at $16,705. Several enlisted with the Confederate crew. One new recruit was Abigail's second mate, Thomas Manning, a native of Baltimore and southern sympathizer who offered to lead Waddell to more whaling vessels. However, before that could be done, there was another matter. Amongst the transferred cargo, which included silk dresses from Japan, quantities of potatoes, salt, tobacco, canned meat, and even a stove that Waddell confiscated for his own use, there were 25 barrels of brandy, rum, and whiskey. And that was broken into, and drunkenness reigned amongst not only the crew, but some officers. Waddell disciplined with heavy hand. And that did not sit well with many. Morale suffered, and the gulf between Captain and some of his crew widened. Still, there was a job to do, and after firing the Abigail on Sunday, May the 28th, Waddell pushed on to the northwest. The 1st of June brought cold, windy rain and snow. Temperatures plummeted, and the Shenandoah's rigging was covered in ice, forcing members of the crew to ascend and clear by hand. Sun returned June the 4th, but they found themselves in an ice field. Men had to take to whale boats with rope and grapnels, hooking them onto ice floes and nudging the ship away from them. The hard work allowed escape, but the evening brought dense fog and more snow. A course change was made. And the Confederate cruiser made the Bering Strait on Friday, the 16th of June. On the day of the summer solstice, the 22nd, they found the Western Arctic Whaling Fleet. At 9 a.m., the William Thompson was sighted with harpooned whale alongside. She was easy pickings. And before the transfer was complete, another sail was sighted. An hour later, the Euphrates was captured, both from New Bedford. And while Euphrates' goods were being transferred, yet another ship was spotted, and another chase was on. The Robert L. Town was found to be a neutral ship, but something found earlier on the William Thompson gave many aboard the Shenandoah reason for concern. That vessel had left California as recently as April the 22nd, and its crew reported the capture of Richmond, Charleston, Lee's surrender, and Lincoln's assassination. Waddell asked for documentation, but they could not produce a newspaper. 
So, after placing the values of the two ships and their cargoes at a total of $83,245, Waddell ordered both to be burned, and the Shenandoah continued to head northward. Just after noon, the Sophia Thornton was captured, valued at 70000 It was burned. Shortly thereafter, the Milo was taken, and its captain, Jonathan C. Hawes, told Waddell the war was over. But like earlier, no documentation could be found to support his report. The Milo was valued at $46,000 and placed under bond. Amid the whaling fleet, it was a feeding frenzy. And after a two-hour chase, the Jira Swift was taken. Valued at over $61,000, it was burned. Five vessels had been taken that day on the summer solstice, and all claimed New Bedford, Massachusetts as their home port. And the frenzy continued. The next day, the 23rd, the Susan Abigail out of San Francisco was captured. Valued at only 6500 she, too, was burned. As she reports about the war's end, Waddell claimed he found newspapers on the Susan Abigail that reported Jefferson Davis was in Danville, Virginia, but exhorting to fight on. We'll never know if his claim was real, for blood was in the water and the Shenandoah continued to seek prey. On Sunday the 25th, the General Williams was seized, valued at $44,740 and burned. Waddell had been sent to destroy the North's Arctic whaling fleet, and he and his ship were having unprecedented success. From June 22nd through 25th, Waddell's crew had taken seven vessels, burning all but one, five from New Bedford, and four of them burned. The seven prizes were valued at a total of over 312000 and that Confederate windfall was nothing to what would come June 26th and 28th. A wolf among sheep. The Shenandoah captured and burned six more vessels on the 26th. The William C. Nye, Nimrod, Catherine, General Pike, Isabella, and Gypsy. Four call New Bedford their home port. One, New London. And the William C. Nye, San Francisco. Declared value of the six... Over $189,000. Thus far, the Shenandoah had taken 13 ships in six days. And even that would pale in light of what transpired Wednesday, June 28th. At 10 a.m. that morning, the bark Waverly, another out of New Bedford, was taken, valued at over 62000 and burned. Only the beginning For as we opened our episode, the Confederate cruiser came upon nine more New England whalers all clustered around a crippled bark whose hull had been pierced by ice, the Brunswick. Waddell approached flying the Stars and Stripes, and so most believe the sleek black-hulled vessel was a ship associated with the Western Union Telegraph Expedition. A warning shot confused the whalers, and then Waddell ordered the Confederate battle ensign run up. His intent was now quite clear. Only one ship, the favorite, tried to resist, but that was futile. In one of the worst days in the history of the United States whaling industry, the CSS Shenandoah captured 11 ships. 
That day, destruction totaled $400,563, and bonded property added up to over 78000 By 4 p.m., nine ships were burning, and as we earlier mentioned, two, the James, Maury, and Nile were bonded and loaded with some 222 prisoners bound for San Francisco. Again, industry in New Bedford was devastated, for nine of the vessels hailed from that Massachusetts location. Waddell now turned south. Though the heading was south, there was a tense moment on Saturday, July 1st, when the ship plowed into ice. Though surrounded by 20 to 30 feet of ice, men went overboard and incredibly cleared away out without any noticeable damage to the vessel. It was about this time, after the narrow escape, that Waddell actually entertained thoughts of attacking the port of San Francisco and a single turreted Union ironclad, the Comanche. But he abandoned the idea. Still heading south, by Wednesday, August the 2nd, the Shenandoah was about a thousand miles west of Mexico's southern coast. It was there the English bark, Barracuda, was spotted. It was stopped. And amongst its cargo, a mighty dose of reality. On board the English ship were San Francisco newspapers. The war was indeed over, and had been for some time, for three to four months. Another development was afoot as well. Four days before the capture of the Susan Abigail, which came on June 25th, and ten weeks after Lee surrendered at Appomattox, James Dunwoody Bullock sat down in his Liverpool office and penned a letter to Waddell. Its content told of Confederate defeat, of President Andrew Johnson's declaration that the war was over, and therefore no European power would allow any Confederate vessel to enter any port. Bullock ordered Waddell to stop and assist. Dropping those bombshells, he gave little guidance. Copies of his letter were made and distributed to Nagasaki, Shanghai, and Sandwich Islands, any place where the cruiser might make port, and to every British consul. But Waddell and his men, of course, were completely unaware of Bullock's letter, but the San Francisco papers found on the Barracuda made one thing certain. Their latest 38 captures now read like a list of criminal indictments. Immediately, Waddell ordered the disarming of his vessel and reconverting her to a merchant ship. Gunports were filled in and the steamer's black smokestack whitewashed. The hunter was now the hunted. Realizing that every U.S. man of war would be in search of his vessel, Waddell had to find a port to sail into and surrender. He considered Sydney, Australia, but opted for an English port on the Atlantic side. That, of course, meant the Shenandoah would have to sail around the world. War over and ship disarmed, morale and discipline disintegrating, Waddell refused to be swayed from his decision to surrender question was where. In a rare moment of democracy, Waddell allowed his officers to vote, and they opted for Liverpool. That meant their route would be south from the western coast of Mexico, passing around Cape Horn and making Liverpool by way of the Atlantic, a distance of 9,000 nautical miles over three months, 
and all the while being hunted by Union vessels. On Monday, August the 17th, they crossed the equator for the third time in 10 months. And on the evening of Tuesday, September the 29th, about 10 p.m., the Shenandoah traversed a path in the mid-Atlantic that she had taken the previous November. Lieutenant Whittle noted, We have traveled over 45,000 statute miles of water. We have been around the world, the first to carry our downtrodden flag around. Indeed, the Shenandoah, its officers and crew, had circumnavigated the globe. Yet each day was stressful. Every sail that appeared feared. On October the 4th, a Sunday, Shenandoah crossed the Tropic of Capricorn. On the 9th, the crew marked the anniversary of their sailing from Liverpool. By now, the Shenandoah's wear and tear worried her crew. Her copper sheath was torn and rolled up to expose her teak hull. And there was wear and tear on the crew, too. Salt pork was constant and too few vegetables and or fruit. Men were on edge and tempers were quick to flare. That month, October, brought the first death of a member of the crew. Given the miles and exploits, incredibly, that crewman died of venereal disease, William Bill. And on the 30th of that month, a second crewman died. Sergeant George Canning passed at 5.45 p.m. from a wound he had incurred three and a half years ago at the Battle of Shiloh. As the distance to Liverpool shortened, worry increased. So close, but so many in pursuit. And yet on Wednesday, November the 4th, 1865, after 122 days and 23,000 miles, the Shenandoah made their first landfall since the Aleutian Islands when they saw the Irish coast. Just before midnight, November the 5th, Waddell fired rockets and burned blue lights to draw the attention of a Liverpool pilot. The next day, the 6th, a Friday, the only Confederate ship to circumnavigate the world anchored in River Mercy. Though there had been incredibly trying times, after all of the experiences, Lieutenant Whittle was in tears. Just moments before Waddell officially surrendered the vessel, the quartermaster hauled down the Confederate ensign, the last to do so in the American Civil War, folded the banner, and presented it to Whittle, who in turn presented it to Waddell. Then, the ship captain officially surrendered the Shenandoah to Captain James A. Painter of the HMS Donegal. Painter told the crew they were allowed to go ashore, but they could not take their belongings. With that expressed condition, not one of the crew budged. U.S. Consul Thomas Dudley and Charles Francis Adams called for the entire crew's arrest and the ship's confiscation. Foreign Minister Lord Russell turned the matter over to his ministry's legal team. At 7 a.m. of November the 8th, Painter boarded the ship and reported the ministry's findings. All crewmen, save British subjects, were free to leave. The crew was then called on deck and each was asked his nationality. Now let's make clear, there were Englishmen, Irish, and Scots on board, and yet each one answered he was a Southerner. Though Painter knew their origin, 
He was tired of the matter, and he allowed all to leave. They had been together for 13 months and 58,000 miles. They had circled the world, destroyed 32 vessels, ransomed six, and taken 1,053 prisoners. The value of vessels and cargoes destroyed came to $1.4 million. And as Waddell put it, the last gun in defense of the South was fired from her deck. Two days later, the ship was turned over to the United States Consul Dudley. The crew scattered, as did the Shenandoah's officers. Whittle went to Argentina, where he was joined by fellow lieutenants Sidney Smith Lee Jr., Horace Brown, and John Mason. As time mellowed, U.S. authorities all eventually returned to the United States. James Dunwoody Bullock stayed on in Liverpool and became a member of the Port's maritime business community. His nephew, Teddy Roosevelt, visited him while he researched his book, The Naval War of 1812, which was published in 1882. James Waddell, within a week of his return, suffered hemorrhaging from his lungs and was near death, but survived. He was joined by his wife, Anne, and the two moved to a small English town, Waterloo, where he worked in the shipping industry. Pardoned in 1875, he returned to the United States and served as a captain in the Pacific Mail Lines. He died at 61 on March 15, 1886, and was buried in St. Anne's Cemetery just outside the United States Naval Academy. In 1964, the United States Navy commissioned a destroyer, the USS Waddell. His mission during the Civil War helped to reduce the United States whaling fleet from 186 vessels in 1861 to 100. The New York World stated his and other Confederate raiders' impact when it wrote, More than 1,000 of our ships we have been compelled to sell to foreigners because our flag furnished no protection. Indeed, the United States lost more than half the tonnage of its merchant marine, some 800,000 tons to foreign flags, and another 110,000 tons to Confederate raiders like Waddell's Shenandoah. The vessel itself sailed from Liverpool bound for New York Harbor. U.S. Naval Captain Thomas F. Freeman and 55 crewmen were forced to return to Liverpool due to treacherous weather. On Sunday, December 6, 1865, U.S. Consul Dudley auctioned off the cruiser to Nathaniel Wilson, who paid 15,650 pounds. And he, in turn, sold it at a profit of 1,000 pounds to an agent for the Sultan of Zanzibar who wanted to convert the vessel into his private yacht. It proved to be too expensive, and so the only Confederate vessel to circle the globe, the last to fire a shot, and last to furl its flag, was rechristened the El Mahid and put into service as a merchant freighter. Depending on whom you ask, the vessel either deserved a better fate or got what she deserved when in 1879 she struck an uncharted reef and disappeared beneath the waters of the Indian Ocean. 
claimed by the very waters she had conquered in 1864 and 65. After the war, Charles Sumner, the Senate chair of the Committee on Foreign Relations, stated that Great Britain, for aiding the Confederacy, owed half the war's cost that the North incurred, $2.5 billion, and proposed taking British possessions in Western Hemisphere as compensation. Great Britain, of course, was incredulous. There was an 1868 compromise agreement signed by an Anglo-American group, but the U.S. Congress overwhelmingly voted it down since the Confederate cruiser's Alabama damages were excluded. Then, events in Europe aided the United States. First, the Germans defeated France, and in 1871, Otto Bismarck declared a German empire. Threatened on the continent, Great Britain wanted security. So when Secretary of State William Seward sought damages in the form of the so-called Alabama claims, Uncle Sam had leverage. Seward sought a payment of $19,021,000 for damage done by 11 Confederate cruisers. The bulk of that amount came from three, just over $6.5 million by the Alabama, just under $6.5 million by Waddell Shenandoah, and just over $3.5 million by the Florida. An 1871 Treaty of Washington put the claim to arbitration. The United States, Great Britain, Italy, Brazil, and Switzerland each sent one delegate. They met in Geneva, December 15, 1871, and on September the 14, 1872. From those two meetings, the arbitrators awarded the United States $15,500,000 in gold. And one final note. With the Shenandoah's wrecking of the Pacific whaling fleet there in the rich hunting grounds of the Bering Strait, there were, of course, repercussions. Some expected. One completely unexpected. With profits already declining and the steep price required to construct and outfit new ships to replace those destroyed, the whaling fleet was never rebuilt. There are many who today believe that with the Shenandoah wreaking havoc on the whaling fleet and with the decisions not to rebuild and continue the, if you will, harvesting of whales in that region, there was a most unintentional blessing. The saving of three species of whales from extinction. The humpback, bowhead, and Pacific gray. Most ironic indeed from the destructive consequence of war, survival. Back in December of 2018, yours truly was trying to learn the ropes of this new platform, the podcast. Then, I couldn't imagine anyone sitting for longer than 40 or 45 minutes listening to anyone about anything. However, with deep appreciation to many loyal listeners since then, heeding their suggestions and hoping that I better understand the dynamics of what it is to construct and record a podcast, next month we'll return to a topic that constituted episode number 11. We'll return 
to the December of 1862, to the fog and cold of a southern town that sat on the west bank of the Rappahannock. When next we gather, we'll revisit and expand upon the Battle of Fredericksburg and the winter of 1862-63. I hope you'll be with us. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by The Badge Maker, your go-to source for American Civil War Corps badges and other handmade, American-made historical reproductions. Contact the proprietor, Joseph Valicenti, and place your orders at www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com. That's www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com.